Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So the public inquiry into foreign interference into Canadian elections, again, headed by Commissioner Marie-José Hogue, wrapped up a week of hearings yesterday, and the federal public safety minister, Dominic LeBlanc, insisted the government will keep a tight lid on what documentation and information will be publicly released. Groups and individuals affected are calling on the government for significant public disclosure. I think we all should. We're all involved. We all have a stake in this. We don't want to see a bunch of paper that's 90% redacted. China, of course, primarily, and India as well, have been identified as being active in interfering in Canada's 2019 and 2021 federal elections. Conservative Party Member of Parliament Michael Chong of Ontario and CPC MP Kenny Chu of British Columbia. They were both targeted by China in 2021, as were former Member of Parliament and CPC leader Aaron O'Toole and NDP Member of Parliament Jenny Kwan. So we've talked about this issue heading up to this public inquiry. I think sometimes we wondered whether we'd ever see it see the light of day. And we've talked with Kenny Chu on a number of occasions, the former Conservative Party Member of Parliament from British Columbia, targeted by Beijing in the 2021 federal election. Kenny, did you ever think that we would get to the point where we would actually get to the end of week one of speaking in this public inquiry? Did you think we would see today? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, the, the only thing, it's, it's all being played uh, like a train rack in a very, very slow motion. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a, a movie buff, and, and uh, to me it's so boring because I, I already know the ending of this movie. And uh, so it's very uninteresting, but uh, nonetheless, yes, I can imagine that. Well, you can't do this to us. <laughs> you have to share the ending. Well, I mean, there, there is no, I, I can tell you that uh, they will find there is no uh, evidence. They couldn't find the fingerprint on the smoking gun uh, that points to um, the uh, communist Chinese uh, interfering on Canadian uh, affairs. And we will basically throw away all the CESA's reports that's been tabled to Canadian government uh, in secrecy or publicly. Um, Roy, I mean, I, I'm sure you, you're aware of uh, a latest access to information uh, discovered um, briefings that has been tabled to the, the government uh, by CESIS uh, last year. Uh, in the 10% that has not been redacted, 
It says that PRC, the People's Republic of China's sophisticated, pervasive, and persistent effort to promote its interests through political interference undermines Canadian sovereignty, are anti-democratic, and have divisive effects on Canadian civil society, particularly within Chinese-Canadian communities. And this is what the Canadian National Security Intelligence Service, uh, you know, a very focused mandate organization in Canada, has warned the government. <clears throat> and yet, uh, what they realize that they need to do is to do um, to try a second time to do more study, to listen to the uh, you know the perpetrator, the accused, the alleged perpetrators. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it, it's hard for me to uh, not predict the ending it's such, in such a groomy kind of scene. Yeah, you're a former conservative member of parliament, so some people might say that I'm stacking the deck when I raise this point. But you were, you were influenced. They, I mean, they, Beijing did influence your opportunity to be reelected, and they actually threatened Mr. Chong and his family in Hong Kong. I don't know if they threatened you or not, but the CSIS did come to see you. That is correct, Roy. Um, uh, they came to see me when I was an MP, and I also reported to them what I've been reported to by my volunteers, um, the spread of disinformation during the election. So I met them during the election, and finally last September, uh, they arranged a meeting with me to confirm what I've known for a long time. That's been reported in Canadian media um, with the CSIS whistleblower. And that is, there has been a organized disinformation campaign in place in 2021 against me uh, specifically. However, there, there's also another layer. I mean, if it is just Kenny Chu, uh, it would have been enough to take him down in specifically the British Columbia riding of Seas and Richmond East. However, we see national campaign uh, in Chinese Canadian congregated communities using Kenny Chu and Aaron O'Toole to undermine the conservative supports in those communities. And so that tells me that some, somebody uh, has been organizing this and systemically um, trying to interfere with our political democratic process. They're not going to quit now, are they? Yeah, I mean, we have a public inquiry. That's fine. Beijing won't care. They won't, they won't quit. When, when our next election is called, never mind that, leading into the next election, Beijing will continue to interfere in the process in this country. Am I, am I correct? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, what I would agree to is um, Australia had, had gone down similar path before, and the political uh, interference um, at least has not been worsened, and to a certain degree can argue that it has stopped the, the PRC, the Communist Chinese political interference. The difference is the political landscape in Australia, it's not the same as Canada. When, we, when they talk about the communist Chinese interference in the political system in Australia, 
it was a bipartisan, uh, nonpartisan issue that the um, the Australian Liberal and the and the and the Labour were on on side to protect their own country's democracy, and they show a face of power to the perpetrators that you know Australia. It's not a weak country. Now that didn't stop them completely. They are still looking into other ways. Um, you know, rather more cynical ways like uh, through social media, TikTok and all that. But at least it's not as brazen as we are observing in Canada. So when when Canada is showing its weak side, um, understandably, authoritarian regimes such as the communist Chinese, uh, they are not going to stop. They realize that this is this is the weakest link in uh, Five Eyes, in the Western democracies, it's perfect for them to escalate in more sophisticated and nefarious attempts in interfering us. And, and that's what I predict, and that's what I think would happen if we don't take some um, solid action, uh, legislative and, and communicative, and showing these countries that we're, we're not the weakest link. And, you know, Roy, this is not just communist China. We're, we're talking about all these authoritarian regimes, and CISAs have been warning us that, uh, you know, Russia, Iran, and, and even India are, are watching. And, you know, if, if they realize that Canada is not interested in protecting itself, you know, they're just going to escalate their operations in Canada. And now we've had week one of the public inquiry, and Mr. Um, what's his name? The, uh, what's the name? Kenny, what's the name of the public safety minister? LeBlanc. Yeah, Dominic, yeah, Dominic LeBlanc. LeBlanc. He, he says, don't expect as much as you might be expecting. And uh, I, I just have this recurring, annoying little thought in my head that says, and you ask me to tell me, please, quickly, if you think this is possible, that there are, in fact, people who have of significance in the governing of this country, whether elected or in the public service, who are beholden to China, beholden to Beijing, would it surprise you if eventually we find out that's the case? Um, Roy, I mean, we're, we're in the speculation territory now. I know. Um, but, but, it's, but it's legitimate given what we've gone through, what you've gone through. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and the condestation clandestine and the covert nature um, of the interference uh, can help us to, uh, you know, to speculate a little bit. And so, yes, I, I do think, I mean, I, I, find it, I find it very difficult if I were to be the liberals' devil's advocate. Uh, like, why can't they not like the laborers in uh, Australia or, or the the um, the laborers in um, United Kingdom to to take the matter, uh, or the Democrats in the United States to take the matter as a nonpartisan issue. I, I couldn't find a reason other than, for example, uh, early in um, Prime Minister Trudeau's um, uh, her, his term as uh, as a prime minister, he fundraised in um, uh, you know dump, the dumpling gathering the, the uh, donation for access kind of thing. Uh, many of them are influential, uh, in fact, the so-called community leaders that were donating to him 
And, you know, unfortunately, I can't avoid to be a little bit cynical on this end. And there well, who can blame some you? Gain. Um, and, th- and the fact that uh, the former prime minister and uh, some of the former ministers strongly advocated the release of Ms. Meng Wanzhou right. way ahead of China releasing the two mic posts. Yeah. Um, it just sort of gives me an impression that they are just considering nothing but uh, China's benefit. Kenny, in the, few seconds, all, in the few seconds we have left, Kenny, give me a yes, no, or maybe. Would you consider running again in the Steveston Richmond East riding in BC? Yes, no, maybe? Yes, I'm seriously considering Good. running again. I got to go. I have to run. The time got us. The clock got us. But thank you so much for the time, and we will ask you again. Take care. The argument, essentially, was that a person who was terminally ill should be able to have as an option the right to physician-assisted death, if that person wished, in order to not prolong the suffering that they were experiencing. Such as loss of dignity, pain, etc., as the disease progressed. That was the voice of Chris Considine, and uh, I got to know Chris in the early '90s when Sue Rodriguez, who was dying of ALS, this is not easy stuff to talk about, but it's also something that shouldn't be avoided. And Sue Rodriguez was dying of ALS, and she wanted a physician-assisted death. And Mr. Considine, who's an excellent lawyer and a really good guy, he represented Ms. Rodriguez to the best of his professional and personal ability, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and argued, I thought, very persuasively that a person should have the right to what we now call medical assistance in dying. And in the Early 90s, you can correct me on this. I'm just going by memory. It might have been 92 or 93. The Supreme Court of Canada decided by a five to four count to not permit physician-assisted death. Five to four. That's how close it was. Had it been five to four in the other direction, we wouldn't have had 35 years of people dying under very difficult circumstances when they really wanted to have an assisted death. And it's been in the news over the last week or two again because the issue of mental illness being uh, the um, decision maker for someone choosing maid. So, and it's a tough thing for people, some people to even Talk about, so I, I tweeted out today, or X'd out today, sorry, Elon. I uh, X'd, I don't want to piss off a guy that's got $243 billion. I want one of those cars free. Uh, not really, I like my beast. So I, uh, I te- X'd out, <laughs> sounds like I crossed something out. I X'd that at Doc S. Green will be on the show today on Made as medical assistance in dying remains so publicly contentious. Again, this week. And I added, as someone living with stage 4 cancer, let me say safeguards are fine, roadblocks are not. And, and 
even though, I mean, you, you were all wonderful when I was in the hospital last year and I was trying to keep people up to date on what was going on and how close a call it was for me. But when we get into something like this, where you put it on social media, it's, it's difficult for people to, to respond to. And I understand that. I would have difficulty too. What do I say? What do I say to Roy? Why is he doing this? The reason I'm doing it, and I told you this going in, is that I'm hoping that by talking about it freely and with, with people like my friend Todd Seals, who's lived for 17 years with metastatic prostate cancer, when they gave him just months, I'm hoping that we'll be able to persuade some men in this country to not ignore symptoms and go see their doctors and get PSA tests don't wind up like I did because I was stupid. And here I am with stage four metastatic prostate cancer. And so I think about, not all the time, not every day, and I'm feeling fine. I really feel fine. But I think about medical assistance and dying. And I've made my decision on it. And if you listen to me at all, you can pretty well guess what my decision is. So we're joined by Dr. Stephanie Green. She's the co-founder and president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. She's a medical advisor to the British Columbia Ministry of Health Maid Oversight Committee and a member of the clinical faculty at UBC and the University of Victoria. And her book is This is Assisted Dying, a doctor's story of empowering patients at the end of life. Dr. Green, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, good to be here. And uh, Roy, I am sorry to hear of your new diagnosis. Well, thank you. I promised, I w- promised myself I wouldn't ask you, how are you? And I usually <laughs> do that with doctors. <laughs> <laughs> still standing is the answer. How yeah, about you? <laughs> yeah, good, good. I keep saying I'm still on the right side of the carpet. But, you know, life is what it is, and we make of it what we can. Yes. And uh, as long as we have energy and desire to continue, I think that, that means a great deal, ultimately. I but agree. Can you share with us what the law is now as far as medical assistance in dying is concerned? What are the what are the factors that you have to satisfy? Yeah, so overall they haven't changed greatly despite uh, what the headlines scream. It's kind of been mostly the same, but certainly since 2021 when there was an amendment to the law. There's there's essentially five things that need to be true if you want to qualify for an assisted death in this country. You do need to be an adult over 18. You do need to have government-funded health care or be eligible for government-funded health care, so no tourists. You do need to make a voluntary request, so nobody has encouraged you to make this decision. You do need to have the capacity to make this request, so you need to understand what's wrong with you and what your treatment options are and, and uh, kind of appreciate the whole situation you're in so that you can give an informed consent to the process. And you need to have what the law calls a grievous and irremediable condition. And that's really the crux of the matter, where the law actually is very clear about what that means. It means three things need to be true on top of all the ones that I've just mentioned, that you have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability, that you are already in an advanced state of decline, uh, mostly in function is what we mean, and that you're you're enduring a suffering, that you're suffering in a way that you yourself believe is intolerable and not able to be relieved in any way that you find acceptable. So it's quite a bit. There's quite a rigorous uh, program in place. Yeah. 
What is made? What happens? What is made? Well, it's a, you know the process itself as medical assistance and dying is is an event that uh, where people have been able to choose when and where and with whom they're going to die. How that actually looks can be very, very individual, but from a nuts and bolts point of view, um, it's the administration of medication that is going to cause the end of life. That could be self-administered. It could be a liquid uh, medication that the patient themselves holds onto and drinks that causes their death over the course of about half an hour. Or more commonly in Canada, it's the administration of intravenous medications by the clinician. It could be a doctor or a nurse practitioner. And they give a series of a, a prescription, usually of four medications, that will place the patient in a, into a very comfortable sleep and then into a much more deep coma, a comatose state, and eventually will cause the end of their life. And that's usually a, a more controlled, kind of shorter event, about eight to ten minutes. Mm-hmm. But that's really, you know, the nuts and bolts of what it is. Okay. So I, I, I guess I'm going to go back to the previous question with this uh, and answer with this question. Sure. Um, one of the concerns that I hear expressed is, well, people are going to be pushed, nudged, persuaded that they should, in fact, engage made. And maybe that's going to be done because somebody greedy wants to get at an inheritance. You've heard all this. Sure, sure. What do you, what do you say to that? What are the safeguards? And maybe you maybe it's all part and package of what you explained to us a few minutes ago. But, well, but I, I mean, I think it's a valid question and a valid concern. And I, you know, interesting. We, we've had made we've had assisted dying in Canada for seven and a half years now. We have annual uh, reports, lots of data at this point. There is zero evidence of that claim. Uh, which is interesting, uh, over the past seven and a half years. I'm not surprised at that because I, I know the clinicians that do this work and the careful and cautious nature that they work. But essentially, what you're saying is, you know, people are suggesting that people might be coerced into this by a, you know, an angry spouse or a greedy child or a, you know, a friend who has some sort of incentive. In fact, as I mentioned, this, this does need to be a voluntary request by the patient only by the patient. It cannot be triggered by anyone else. And part of my job is to establish that it is voluntary, that it's consistent with what the patient has always kind of thought about end of life and consistent with their wishes and that they're able to express themselves clearly about why they want it and make a kind of a logical argument for them why it makes sense to have private time with the patient to hear them out and to you know investigate the story and the records and speak to the people in their lives. Um, you know, to suggest that someone could trick the clinician into thinking it's that when it's not is is, is extremely unlikely, and there's certainly no evidence of, of ever seeing that. Yeah, the, the, the three factors that you mentioned, I would only qualify for the first one. So, so the one so, that you that you have a serious yeah that I have a serious stability. right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're not yet in an advanced state of decline from what I know about No, you. I'm not. And you're happily not suffering at this point. I'm not. Fantastic. You know, at some point, those things may change, but hopefully very long time from now. And and hopefully, I, I think that one of the hopes is that, you know, if you're connected to the medical and the healthcare system, if you're being followed and cared for, that as symptoms and decline arise, that we can answer that with 
good symptom control, good supportive care, uh, sometimes with active and aggressive care, but to the point that you don't ever get to the point of intolerable suffering. Many people will kind of ask for MAID and be followed along in fear of what's to come, but do find they find the resources they need so they never get to the place of intolerable suffering and never really, never, never invoking MAID. They have a natural death with good supportive care, and that's, that's a win also. Dr. Green, when it comes to the issue of mental health or mental illness being the sole determinant for MAID, what do you say? Well, I think it's a it's an important question. It's it's not such a simple one. I think we you need to remember that the the high court in this country that allowed our law to change to allow assisted dying did not say at any time if you have blue eyes you can't have MAID. Or if you have a mental health disorder, you can't have made. They talked about what did need to be required. And the law has always talked about what does, what criteria need to be met. So to some extent, removing an entire group of Canadians that have a particular diagnosis from access to safe and legal medical care does seem a bit discriminatory. And in fact, our original law did not exclude those with mental health because the courts didn't. But in 2021, the government um, decided it was time to put that exclusion in place because the law was being amended to remove some other criteria that seemed to be keeping that at bay. And when the exclusion went in, an entire uh, group of Canadians were, for the very first time, excluded from this care. This delay of removing that exclusion is what's happening. People talk about it as an expansion of made law. I think it's better contextualized as a restoration of the rights of those with mental health disorders to accessing care that every other Canadian has. So I think that context is important as we have the discussion. Mm -hmm. How much dissent is there, if it does exist, over made in the medical profession? Made as a whole, I'd say less and less. I mean, certainly when we started in 2016, there was a lack of understanding of what this was or how it could work or whether it would be safe. Very few clinicians stepped forward to get involved in the work. I think we've seen a radical change in that. We've seen an understanding of what this is and how it can benefit patients, how it can be done safely, how, how it can be done in a safeguarded way, and how it's benefited Canadians. And I've seen, you know, anecdotally and across the country, Many more clinicians more interested or more willing, I should say, to be involved, to support their own patients, even those who were quite determined not to be involved. So there has been a shift, not an enormous amount, not the vast majority, but certainly many more Canadian clinicians uh, are understanding of why this care is important and how it can help. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that 30 years ago, had the Supreme Court reversed its vote from five to four, no, no physician-assisted death, to five to four, yes, made is permitted, we wouldn't be talking about this very much anymore. Well, that's probably true. I I think one of the things the court said back in in the early 90s was five to four, no, because we don't think Canadians are ready for this major societal philosophical shift. I think in a question of law, and I'm not a legal scholar, there was some understanding that this probably should be passed but that Canadian society wasn't ready. You know, fast forward 20 years, and there had been, by then, 20 years of discussion, maybe 30 years of discussion, about what this could be and how it could look and how it could work, and we saw what other countries were doing and how it could be done safely. So then Canadians were ready, and instead of a 5-4 to four controversy, we had a 9-0 to zero unanimous court in 2015 make this decision. I only have a few seconds left. Have you ever said... 
no, I won't to a patient? I've said that when I didn't feel that they qualified under the legislation, whether I thought it was right or wrong for them personally or medically. Um, I, you know, I, I will always work to the highest degree of medical standards within the law of our country. And there are times I've had to say no to patients because of that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let me play you something that was said on this program a couple of weeks ago by the president of the Canadian Medical Association when Dr. Kathleen Ross was talking about the emergent situation in our Canadian hospital emergency rooms. We have both an inflow into the emergency department challenge and an outflow uh, for admitted patients uh, in the emergency department. And part of that's uh, an inadequate number of beds for the surge we're facing right now. And part of it's not having those alternate levels of care beds, you know, long-term care and rehabilitation. Uh, and then on the inflow side, with patients not having access to primary care, and we know that, you know, one in five Canadians don't have a primary care provider. And So there's a little bit of what the president of the Canadian Medical Association told us, and the only reason she came on that program two weeks ago was to talk about the concern Canada's doctors have about the state of emergency rooms. So I read an an op-ed in the National Post a couple of days ago by Julia Malott, and it it really caught my attention, and I was fortunate enough to be able to touch base with Ms. Malott, who's uh, joining us. Uh, She took her 19-year-old daughter to St. Mary's General Hospital, ER, in Kitchener, Ontario, after her daughter was diagnosed with appendicitis, she was eventually diagnosed with appendicitis and was experiencing terrible pain. What happened over the last, or the next 19 hours, was very disturbing. So we're going to talk about uh, this and more with Julia Malott, and you can follow her on Twitter, at Alotta Malotta. It's very clever. I like that. Julia, thank you for coming on the program. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Tell us, please, about the condition of your daughter when you took her to St. Mary's General Hospital in Kitchener, Ontario. So on Sunday night, my daughter was complaining about a lot of abdominal pain. It had been developing through the day, and by the evening, it was clear that something was abnormal. So we were hesitant to go to the hospital because we know very well the state of healthcare in Ontario. And I warned her this could be many hours of waiting, but I also trust her, and I asked her if the pain was severe enough, and she said it was. So we went to the hospital, and it was seven or eight hours before we got a diagnosis of presumed appendicitis, but they couldn't confirm that diagnosis because in order to do that, they needed an ultrasound, and apparently this hospital doesn't do ultrasounds until 8 a.m. in the morning. So we continued to wait, and this is where things started to take a really, really negative turn. Uh, By 5 a.m., we had to give up our bed because somebody else needed the bed in the emergency room. So she had to go out to sit in the in the waiting room, which, of course, does not feel good when your appendix is swollen. That's no. the pressure in the sitting position. And we eventually got that appointment at, uh, at 9 a.m. We got in. By 10, they told us that this was definitely appendicitis. I later learned when I got the medical records that there was even fluid outside of the appendix. So this was a possible rupture. They couldn't confirm until they 
went in for surgery, but we continued to wait uh, because there were no beds available and St. Mary's Hospital cannot do the surgery. So we had to go to Grand River, which is the other hospital in Kitchener-Waterloo, but they had no beds either. So we were waiting and they couldn't give us any advice on when we'd even be transferred. What a nightmare. Oh, it was, it was a real wake-up call. We knew the system was bad, but... And it got worse from there because she also had not eaten or drank because she wasn't allowed to, first for the ultrasound and then because there might be a surgery. But we didn't even know if the surgery would be today. So we had to wait, not feed her, not give her water. Um, eventually, after I pushed very hard, we did get the transfer to um, Grand River Hospital. But when we got there, after driving ourselves, because, of course, there's no ambulance to do the transfer for us, we, we arrived with a package in hand that says the surgeon's name and all of the medical stuff they need. They've already arranged the surgery. But we go in and we get done some triage where we sit for an hour and a half more. And at this point, she's off of IV. So she doesn't, she's not getting her antibiotics to save off any further development. She's not getting pain medication, but her pain is flaring up. And it was really, really disappointing to see. So, so during this, I went to Twitter. I am a Twitter influencer, so I do have quite a following there. And I just posted our experience, and it ended up taking off and capturing a lot of attention. Yeah, it, it really did. And when the Ontario Health Minister visited Kitchener, she was very much made aware of what you had posted. And that's very uncomfortable for politicians. I just mentioned the Premier. Could have mentioned the Health Minister, too, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you, you said you were there for, what was it, seven or eight hours before they diagnosed the appendicitis? It's, it's one thing to yeah. say that seven or eight hours in a sentence, but to live seven or eight hours in distress as your daughter is experiencing incredible abdominal pain. Anybody who's ever had appendicitis knows what it feels like. It's not a pleasant experience, to say the least. I'm glad everything turned out well, but a burst appendix is a very serious issue, and it could have happened any time. Absolutely. It could have already happened. That's what we learned afterwards was that the, the ultrasound was inconclusive, whether there had been a rupture. Fortunately, once she had surgery that evening, we confirmed there wasn't. So it was a, a minor surgery in that respect, but we didn't know what we were dealing with. And, and when you mentioned the minister there, we, we tagged her on the original post. It has more than a million views now. So it certainly was on their team's radar as thousands of people were commenting. I also sent an email to her team because when I found out they were coming the next day, I figured she might want to speak with my daughter, um, and we didn't hear back, but many of the journalists who were at the press conference on Tuesday at St. Mary's with the minister, they raised it. And she did say on record on video that she would love to meet with my daughter to, to really hear her experience. So that was encouraging, but we've sent notes to her team since, and we have received to date no response. Yeah. What about the staff? at the hospital. What was, your, what was your sense about the staff? So that was something that was really, really troubling for my daughter because she is 17 years old and she is an aspiring nurse. So what she wants to do next year is go to school to be an emergency room nurse. And she has, holds these individuals with utmost respect and they're her heroes. And what she thought was that they can't do their job. They can't help people. They can't give the care that they're expected to give. And that is tragic because that changed everything for her. She, she came out of the hospital and said, why would I want to do that with my crime? Why would I want to do that with my life when there's so many other things she could do? And in a province that is so desperate and so safe for medical professionals, we need to attract people. We need to convince this next generation that that is what they want to do. And 
I wouldn't blame her. I wouldn't want to enter it either under, under the current conditions. Yeah, the, the healthcare system in this country is under massive stress, increasingly so. It has been for a long time, but it is un, under massive stress. And we are story after story after story about people who go to the ER or and six million people in this country have no family doctor. So one of the first places they will go is to an emergency room. And then they sit and they wait and they sit and they wait and they sit and they wait and they worry and they walk away sometimes without ever seeing anyone because it's so frustrating. Um, the frontline staff are doing the best they can, but the actual process of running these places has, has gotten out of control. It's just a, it's a mess. How's your daughter now? She's doing very well. Uh, she's a, she's a good, in good spirit with these sorts of things. She's been recovering since Monday. Um, and she actually went to school yesterday for the first day of second semester because she desperately wanted to get to pick her seat in her new classes. So she uh, only has afternoon classes, and we uh, drove her there and back so she could walk minimally, but she's uh, doing really well. I'm glad to hear that. So are our listeners, because you do have an amazing following on Twitter. It's great, it's great that you did that, that you actually posted what was going on because it becomes real time. And then people say, well, I've got to follow this. I've got to find out what's going on, and that it stays with us. For days, and I'm sure the minister heard from quite a few people. That's probably why you haven't heard from the minister or maybe the premier. Um, Julia, there's another thing that we're going to talk about. So your 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 uh, account on X or Twitter is at Alotta Malotta. And uh, on YouTube, uh, tell us what it is on YouTube, please. I can't read my own writing. Uh, it's the same thing, Alotta Malotta. Okay. As it turns out, not many people have taken that username. Not, not many people want. I've taken that username on platforms. Okay. Uh, sometimes, you know, I write something very quickly, and then I look at it, and I think, who wrote this? Nobody? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing when you can't read your own writing, but it happens to me all the time. Alotta Malotta, <laughs> at Alotta Malotta. Now, Julia Malott is also a trans person and host of the AlottaMalotta.com site and uh, on Twitter, at Alotta Malotta, where gender identity and ideology are discussed. Julia, when you, uh, when you went through what Alberta Premier Danielle Smith had to say, and she's a fairly regular guest on this program, about planned gender identity policy changes, what were your thoughts? Because I, I know, or at least I don't know, but I read that you're not completely opposed to everything, but you're not in love with everything either. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really try to take all of these topics with, with nuance and really digest the complexity. That's what I do on my YouTube channel and on Twitter is just really try to take that step back and say, what's going on? What actually works? Because I think so many people get emotionally involved in such a way that they only see one side. They either just see the transgender side or they just see the parent side or they just see the women's side. And all of them matter. Like These are all parts of the equation. This, the way we build good policy is by making sure that we thoughtfully consider how all of those intersections play together. So I was not surprised by parts of what the Alberta policy included. Um, the one part in particular about social transition. So this is going to be names and pronoun changes in schools. We've seen this playing out in Canada and other provinces. We saw it in New Brunswick first last spring, and then we saw it in Saskatchewan just before summer break last year. And basically what this is about is whether or not parents should be either informed or have to consent to these name and pronoun changes in school, or whether a kid, if they were to say, I don't want my parents to know, 
if the school can do that kind of behind the parents' back without telling them. And on this one, I take a very, a very strong stance because I really do believe in parental stewardship. I think parents are that ideological guide of their kids. Having one myself, I certainly would be very upset if a school was cutting me out. And a lot of the arguments that we tend to hear about it in terms of protecting the kid from dangerous situations at home, I don't believe those hold water because if we suspect a home is dangerous, that's why we have children's aid services and we absolutely should be getting them involved in order to support the family, not ignoring it and saying we're going to do something behind their back. You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because uh, I said something similar on uh, Greg Brady's show on AM640 in Toronto yesterday. That's what children's aid societies are for. And uh, parents seem to have either been nudged, pushed, or shoved out of the way of their kids' lives too frequently in the last 20 years. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, it's policy that really needs a lot of discussing, and I'm sure that's uh, what the Premier had in mind. I can't speak for her, but I've known her for a long time. Um, it, it's, it, let me just ask you this. Do you find society today is more welcoming, more inclusive, more understanding of the issue of trans people? It goes, it goes both ways. There's, there's so much going on here. There is more acceptance, there's more inclusivity. Um, and I'm someone who very voluntarily and very publicly puts myself out there. But I do like to be honest on that too, that there is a lot of hate. I was in the news a lot this week because I've been on, uh, I'm on a CBC primetime talking about this, uh, this Alberta matter, but I've also been in the news with my daughter. And when you look at some of those articles about my daughter and I, they're not about trans matters at all. They're just about her experience at the hospital and how we can improve Ontario healthcare. And there's a lot of really, really gross comments that get made about me and my appearance. And so I do think we need to acknowledge that we still have a long way to go in those respects. That being said, that doesn't mean that that's all that matters, because sometimes I think in the effort to be accepting and to be inclusive, we end up with policies that just don't, they're just not safe. They don't vet to make sure that this is the right fit for an individual. And especially when it comes to kids, these are big decisions to have surgery or to go on hormones. And while I believe they can be the right decision in some cases, I also believe that we should be very careful, that we should have good vetting, that the family needs to be involved in support. And... We have had many cases where though all of those have been breached. We talked a lot about nuclear power. We talked with uh, our good friend uh, Terry Bro, Professor Terry Bro, who was uh, the head of energy security for France about the issue of nuclear reactors and what was happening in Europe. France was sort of decommissioning them, and Germany was down to the last one. The last time we talked with Professor Bro, who's going to be back on the air with us very soon. Things I understand are changing somewhat in Europe, and nuclear reactors are somewhat back in favor. But th you may find this particularly interesting with Premier Mo talking about nuclear, small nuclear reactors in Saskatchewan. Ontario is proceeding, and it's not all about Ontario, but this is really interesting. Ontario is proceeding with a massive multi-billion dollar refurbishment of four aging nuclear reactors at its Pickering power plant, which is east of Toronto. And that, Reuters writes, is according to two provincial government sources. Well, we know more about it now because the energy minister has talked about it. And joining us to, uh, to, to share his thoughts on this issue, and we're glad to have him back on the program, 
is Dr. Chris Kiefer. Dr. Kiefer is a staff emergency physician at St. Joseph's Health Center. I don't want to say he's a real doctor, but, well, there are real doctors and there are, there are doctors. He's also a lecturer of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and he's the host of the Decouple podcast. Dr. Kiefer, did you expect this day would happen the first time we talked some years ago? I'm trying to think back to when that was, Roy. Uh, certainly, you know, we started campaigning for the refurbishment of Pickering in 2020. And at that point, I mean, there were other people who thought it made sense, but, you know, they really felt like we were beating a dead horse, that there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell. And, you know, we persisted, you know, we're not industry funded or tied to industry, so we were free to kind of operate and just follow our values. And we felt that for climate reasons, for clean air reasons, for the issue of medical isotopes, Pickering produces enough of a medical isotope called cobalt-60 to sterilize 20% of the world's single-use medical devices. We thought, you know, we're going to fight for this hell or high water. And slowly, the facts on the ground changed. Uh, Energy demand has been increasing in Ontario. um, And we lobbied the government hard, and our arguments seemed to have fallen finally on on sympathetic ears as those facts on the ground changed. And uh, we saw this announcement um, just uh, earlier this week. Um, and, you know, it's it's a huge moment of vindication for the hard work that we put into this campaign. Uh, congratulations. Do you see more of this happening across the country? For example, what Premier Mo talked to us about, but do you see more nuclear development or redevelopment or refurbishing across Canada? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, this, this isn't controversial, this idea of refurbishing uh, nuclear power plants. The way that our national reactor design, the candy reactor, um, is designed is that, you know, at the 30 to 40 year mark, you have the option to do basically, you know, you can think of it as an engine swap out in a car. If you want to think about your house, it would be like changing the furnace, uh, redoing the plumbing, redoing the electrical. And that gives you another 40 years of operation because you got to remember, um, you know, the steel and concrete transmission um, for these nuclear plants is all there. So it's a really good value proposition, not cheap, but, you know, compared to um, the vast amount of power that you put out over those 20 or 30 years, it leads to Ontario electricity, um, nuclear still being the second cheapest source of electricity here in Ontario, despite doing these big uh, renovations, we'll call them. So um, certainly, yes, the refurbishments are happening at candy reactors around the world and now almost every candy reactor in Ontario. But as you mentioned with uh, with Premier Mo, uh, now with interest from uh, Danielle Smith um, in New Brunswick as well, there's serious interest um, in reactors that are better fit for their grid. So a little bit smaller than our, our national reactor technology that can do. And supporters of renewables are not uh, not in disfavor as far as this is concerned, as I understand. It's a mixed bag. Um, you know, Pollution Probe is an NGO here in Ontario. In 2018, they were campaigning to shut down Pickering. Um, they put out a tweet after the announcement um, supporting the government stand on this. So um, that's a really encouraging turnaround. And, and we started to see that, you know, in Finland, um, the uh, Greenpeace uh, and the Green Party uh, have stopped um, fighting nuclear power and are actually in favor of it. Um, so I think, you know, finally, we're starting to see the environmental movement stop uh, scoring own goals on themselves as they have been for many years, uh, trying to shut down nuclear plants. So, you know, very, very encouraging. So had this not happened, had the uh, reactors, and it's not an overnight job, it's it's a long process and it's expensive, as you said, but had it not been approved, what would the outcome have been without the, without these reactors? What would the situation have been? 
Well, it would not have been wind and solar jumping in to save the day. Um, the independent electricity systems operator who runs and, and does some of the planning of the grid said that the vast majority of the power from Pickering would be replaced by natural gas. That would have you know, led to the um, emission of uh, the equivalent of 7.6 million transatlantic flights of CO2 every year. Um, and it would have reversed about one third of the gains we got from phasing out coal. You got to remember, Ontario used to use coal for 25% of its electricity. We had a nuclear powered coal phase out. Nuclear provided 90% of the energy in order to kick coal off the grid. It was called North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction measure. Um, and, you know, just nationally, like if you look at our, our emissions, uh, you know, since the early 2000s, Canada hasn't really made much progress. And that's because the oil sands came online. But what kept our emissions from actually going up was Ontario kicking the coal habit. And again, that was only enabled um, through nuclear energy. So, you know, really important, we thought, to preserve those clean air gains. We used to have 54 smog days a year in Toronto and, you know, about a thousand people dying prematurely every year due to air pollution partially attributed to coal. Um, we thought those gains were, were worth defending. And again, that's part of the reason that we, we got into this battle. Yeah, it's a few billion, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so the refurbishments... Um, you know, this is a mega project. Absolutely. And, you know, in the West, we've been struggling with mega projects, be it airports, uh, be it uh, subways, uh, you know, light rail um, mm. and uh, hydro dams as well. I mean, Site C and Muskrat Falls have gone at least double over budget and faced major delays. And, you know, your listeners will not be uh, unfamiliar with the idea that nuclear plants in the West have been struggling to get built recently in uh, America and in Europe. What's interesting in Ontario is these, uh, these again, these refurbishments have been coming in ahead of schedule. The last unit that was brought back to service in Darlington, six months ahead of schedule and under budget. So, you know, nuclear, it's got a lot of criticisms out there and critiques. And the one that I'll really give ground on is that it's hard. It's difficult. It needs your best people. It needs really mature institutions that know what they're doing. We've built that expertise up in Ontario. And you see that in the fruits uh, of that labor is that we're able to pull out these mega projects well ahead of schedule. And nuclear provides that, you know, similar to hydroelectricity, that long-term value proposition in a way that, you know, other low-carbon alternatives just don't, like wind and solar. Yeah. Do you know what I find uh, that when, when, when I talk to people about nuclear power, I have to get cheering or booing. There's nobody's in the middle. Nobody, nobody's devoid of an opinion, uh, yeah. whether it's an informed opinion or not, but everybody has an opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like to think that I'm actually becoming a bit more moderate. Um, you know, in the beginning, when you get into an issue like this, it's it's true. You get pretty um, pretty polarized, um, just because that's the way our culture is these days. It's it's not a popular position. It doesn't bring you any real reward to sort of sit there in the middle and say, oh, there's a lot of nuance here. Um, again, um, what I will certainly acknowledge to the critics is that nuclear is hard, and if you don't have the right people and the right institutions, you know, it goes over budget and over time. Um, but again, we have something really special here in Ontario. What I will say, you know, just looking at the overall energy situation in Ontario right now, a lot of people said, you know, why are you doing this expensive refurbishment? You know, we should build wind and solar. They're cheaper than, than ever. And, you know, in today, Ontario had a pretty, um, well, it's not such a unique day, um, but we have enough wind installed. If, it were all, if all the wind turbines were spinning at once, we could power um, 5 million homes but only um, less than 1% of that wind was operating today. We could only power 1,000 homes with wind. So it gives you a sense of you know, the fair weather friend element of wind and solar. We saw in Alberta with their power crunch, 
Um, these are not power sources that perform when they are most needed, when they're critically needed. It's a, not a freezing cold day here in Ontario. We've had a mild winter. Um, but winter and, and summer with our air conditioning demand, that's when we need all the power we can get. And unfortunately, that's when wind in particular just, just doesn't show up. Um, so you can install something that's super cheap, but, you know, if you don't have it when you need it, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And, and again, people, you know, the Greens in Ontario, um, the environmental organizations said, don't worry, just build lots of wind and solar, build microgrids, you know, have EVs that can keep the grid going. Maybe we'll get some hydro from Quebec. This cobbled together Rube Goldberg machine, you know, for me, they're playing fast and loose with the most important system we have in our society, which is the electric grid. And we found out uh, two days ago. 7,000 people in, in Toronto found out that even a raccoon can bring things to a stop. <laughs> you know what? And it's, it's kind of an, an amusing thing. I mean, it was probably a major inconvenience for those folks. Um, but again, what we're talking about with an electrify everything agenda is getting rid of the reliable stuff. Uh, with the exception of nuclear, which is ultra low carbon. But once you start getting rid of your diesel backups, um, your natural gas furnaces, and you move over to heat pumps and EVs, then if the electricity is not there, you're in real trouble. You know, and if you're saying, don't worry, we can just not travel at all for a few days while our EVs pick up the uh, tab and try and run the grid. Well, I mean, we've faced weeks without wind and sun. And then you're in real trouble. And then, you know, like I work in a hospital. We've had a power cut before from the grid. Our diesel backups went into play, but it was absolutely hair-raising. You know, there's only one more thing that went wrong and or could go wrong, and we would have had people dying in the hospital. Yeah. My son was in an incubator for five weeks. Oh, for me, wow. the electricity grid is not a joke. It's not something to take lightly. And I think that, unfortunately, you know, the environmentalists, the David Suzuki Foundation and others, again, are, are paying, playing fast and loose with something that we take for granted. Absolutely, because it works so exceptionally well. But let me tell you, if it doesn't work for a day or two, you're into mayhem in this, in this modern society mm -hmm. we live in. Dr. Kiefer, I mentioned at the beginning of the segment with you that we've been in touch with Thierry Bro, Professor Bro in Paris. He's the former head of energy security for, for France. He sent me uh, a, a, an email two days ago. And uh, he writes, on the energy side, new nuclear is still far away, as we've seen in the UK last week. Renewables have been growing fast in 2023, but are now facing cost issues as in North America. 2024 will see some pickup in demand, electricity and gas, which should continue to keep prices above historical average. Are we just, uh, just taking what he said about Europe, what you've said to us about Canada, are we in a, in a continuing in a, in a time of flux as, as far as energy delivery is concerned? Who's going to choose what, when? I mean, certainly everything's gotten more expensive. People see it at the grocery store, they see it in, probably in their power bills, and, and certainly we're seeing it in the power sector when we're looking at resources that we can add to the grid. Um, offshore wind has been experiencing a major crisis, um, huge issues unanticipated with repairs, um, many, many units going offline, having mechanical issues. It's a grueling environment, having a turbine out in a salty ocean with high winds, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the bids that are being put in for offshore wind in New Jersey um, are as uh, expensive as electricity from the world's most expensive nuclear plant down at Bogle. So, you know, it, it is interesting seeing the way things are going. Um, you know, you mentioned this refurbishment and pickering is going to be expensive. Um, you know, the refurbishments are already happening at Bruce and Darlington, um, but somehow nuclear is still the second cheapest cost of power after hydro. And what you see with whenever you add lots of wind and solar is that it's it's cheap to build them and install them. But for some reason, the electricity prices go up. 
So California, you know, it's a leader in uh, in renewable energy in the U.S., highest electricity prices in the continent. Similarly with Germany and uh, and Denmark, um, lots of wind in Denmark, lots of uh, solar and wind in Germany, highest electricity prices. So there's something going on there. And it has to do with the fact that, you know, the electricity grid, it's not, you're not selling a commodity. You don't go to a wind farm and say, I'd like 100 electrons and put them in your toaster like coins. It's a service like healthcare, and you need it there when you need it. Just like an emergency department, it's got to be staffed 24-7 and it's got to be able to respond to emergencies and step up some resources when needed. The power grid needs to do the same. And when either of those systems are not working, people die. I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but again, because of the threat of climate change, we're reimagining our energy system in pretty radical ways. There's ways to reimagine that responsibly with nuclear power, with nuclear power, providing reliable energy as we're used to, or there's really irresponsible ways of, you know, trying again to, to t- put this system together with duct tape of wind, solar, batteries, cars, etc. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.